what Andy saw because he was and is so civic minded was just, hey, if the city, which is is making all this progress, so this you know we, just so many good things are starting to happen. If they're not covered properly, fairly and independently, but if they're not if they're not covered, you know, if all it is is crime of the day and top ten rooftop bars in Nashville, then where are we? And there's been, as there's been all this this national decline in local news and more and more of a spotlight on it. I mean, there are real academic studies that have been done that when cities lose their local newspaper, the amount voting goes down, civic engagement goes down. Um, think people get more polarized and we have enough of that nationally already. Hey everybody, before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T. T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he, wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where, no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Eric Barnes. Eric is a CEO of The Daily Memphian the largest single market digital only local news site in the United States. Starting his career as a staff reporter in the Northeast and working his way up as an editorial assistant, editor, publisher, and now CEO, Eric has seen the downward spiral of traditional print and the explosive growth how news is consumed. This is a great story about risk, going against the grain, and going all in on a paper with something new and different. This is a great episode with Eric, where you will hear why growing up in a blue-collar town never leaves you, how this has shaped his career and his ability to lead as an operator, how he saw the shift to desktop in the late 90s, and how traditional print has declined from its heyday. 
What can happen when you go for something big with ample capital? How the Daily Memphian was launched and what it did from the start to build momentum. Why a local newspaper matters and how this affects the future of a city, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Daily Memphian CEO, Eric Barnes. Eric, great to see you, man. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you seem scrappy, at least from things that I have seen and read. For example, driving a forklift, uh, read Tacoma, Washington, and Alaska, working construction and freezing fish. Uh, But you also got your master's in fine arts from Columbia, right? Yeah. Can you maybe explain or talk about earlier on in life, working construction, driving a forklift, and what's going on there? So, I mean, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, uh, out west, south of Seattle. And um, it's a big, uh, especially back when I was growing up there, a real big blue-collar city. You know, Port, um, the remnants at that time of the logging industry. Um, it, it just, you know, most of my friends were commercial fishermen or they were, you know, their families were in the military or they were electricians or they worked on the port. And that was just kind of the context I grew up in. And so, and a lot of people out there, like the forklift thing, you know, started in part because I, uh, my, my parents owned a small construction company at, at one point in their lives. And so I would work there after school and on the weekends. And then not everybody I knew went to Alaska and worked in fish processing plants, but I, given in the Northwest, it was a somewhat common you know, summer job because you can make a lot of money um, real quickly. And it was, you would make, you didn't, you, you only got paid minimum wage, but you would work so much overtime. You'd work, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. I think the, the law in Alaska at the time would cap you at 80. And you just work and work and work seven days a week, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Most of the time I lived in a tent um, with other people around me. It was just kind of the way it was. And it was a great way to make money. I though, you know, did not want to be that on a long-term basis and, and had enjoyed school and wanted to go to college and, and had lots of friends who'd done that. My, my dad had, my mom did not finish college, but my dad was a, uh, a superintendent and then a regional superintendent. And so anyway, the weird dichotomy of my like existence in a tent in Alaska, pitching fish and driving a forklift, I wanted to get out of that. Right. I mean, I, 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 I love that. I love that that was part of my life, but I wanted to go to school. I wanted to read books. I wanted to write about things. And, um, and then ultimately, you know, in some ways wrote about the things I grew up uh, around, which are very different than my life now. When did it click with you that you wanted to go in to be a writer or to, to go into publishing or to pursue this path? And did you hate it at the time when you were hustling and doing this to provide for yourself at a young age? You know, at at the time, you know, so I think at some point I knew I wanted to write and I mean, probably in high school, but I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you did that, but I had some notion of that. And then in college, I went to school in Connecticut and in college, you know, I was looking through the printed catalog, you know, of, of um, classes and there was a short story class and so you had to write a short story and submit it. And I did. And, and really, essentially, for the first time in my life, so let's say I was 19 then, I was sitting face-to-face across the table from somebody who was a working writer. She'd written novels, short stories. She did magazine writing. And it was Blanche McCrary Boyd. And, and she was the writer in residence there and at, at the college I went to. And she was, one, a really great teacher and a really fun and interesting, kind of fascinating person. 
But it was as much as anything like, oh, wow, that's a thing. You can do that. And she was also a realist, like very few people, writers of fiction. And I knew I wanted to write fiction can make money. It's, you know, the, 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 the big names are the exception. The rule is that people don't make money writing and they teach and they do journalism and they do a mix of things to kind of pay their way. And so when I got out of college, you know, I knew I was knew I wanted to write, but I, I knew I couldn't pay the bills and I certainly couldn't pay my student loans back writing fiction. And the only thing I felt remotely qualified to do was, was be a reporter. And I got a job at a little, very small community newspaper in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. And so that just is kind of where it started. I always had to have a job. I always kept writing. And the same is true now that I, I have a job and I, I guess I have multiple jobs now in publishing. And, but I was always, and I'm still always writing and have kind of reconciled that life. I think, you know, I'd always say that I would love to just write, but I've actually really loved the work I've done, you know, in publishing and not every job, but, you know, the stuff I'm doing now, I, I really do love. I read this quote by Bob Towery. It said, Eric provided energy, strength, and wisdom to an enterprise whose frenetic pace threatened to spin out of control. <laughs> where, did, where, did, so where did Bob write that? I think I found it on LinkedIn. Oh, he did. Within a year of joining our management team, he had risen to its top tier. And before I sold the company in 2001, he had led it to be recognized by Inc. I mean, there are a few more words, but I said enough to not take it out of context. Yeah. The reason why I was curious about this and started here, it seems this background that you have, just from a scrappiness standpoint or from a, from a work ethic standpoint, it seems that that kind of set the tone or gave you a foundation to work your way up. Yes. Specifically with Tower, and I know we'll come to other things after that, but it seems that you're very comfortable in chaos and <laughs> you have always put in a lot of hours. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, both. Yeah, to both of those. And, and sometimes to the frustration of people who work for me. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, you know, I mean, that, that was, I think it goes back to that sort of blue collar upbringing of, of just working and working and working. And my parents had grown up very, very poor um, and had worked their way out of that, right? Work was the, the answer to their affliction. I mean, my father grew up on welfare, you know, one of six kids and just with a non-existent father and just really, you know, tragic stuff. And my mother was in a bit better shape, but her dad was a a train engineer, you know, and they didn't have, you know, they had a, a working class kind of life. And, you know, from just, that was just always the case. And everybody, you know, I think that was true of really all my, certainly my close friends around me back then. My, one of my best friends was a commercial fisherman. He started working on his father's boat when he was, I think he was 10 years old, you know, I mean, just at least part-time, you know? And so I was always kind of around that. And, and it was always this sense for me of it, work could get me out of where I was in this, this uh, at the time, place I didn't want to be, which was Tacoma. I actually really like Tacoma now, and it's, it's more of the symbolism of the place than, than the physical place. And, you know, when I got to the little paper, I mean, in Connecticut, I wrote and worked in night meetings and morning meetings, and you just worked and wrote and worked and wrote. Same thing when I moved to New York, grad school. Um, and, and Towery Publishing, you mentioned Bob Towery, who is, uh, was the founder of, of Towery Publishing and is still a friend. I mean, it was just, I was employee number, I think, 60 or 70. We grew to over 220. I mean, I remember just working. I mean, it was just nonstop work because we were growing and we were doing things. And that's just kind of the only thing I knew. Um, I've gotten better about that over time because um, it is a kind of way to burn yourself out. 
but it was always like the work, you know, and, and writing has been the same. And um, I think everything I've done, you know, you, it's just um, sometimes to a problematic degree, it was like the work would get me out um, and get me ahead. What have you seen in yourself or what have you seen in others to be able to be a reporter, to be a publisher, but then to also take on the beast of the, the operation standpoint and the execution and the management? It seems, yeah. it seems like a, a unique skill set that is hard to find. Yeah. I mean, my journey, you know, my sort of path to this is, is odd in some ways because, you know, I was a reporter um, and I kind of hated it when I was a reporter at, right out of college, mostly because I was really insecure and I didn't like talking to people, it, getting so personal with people, which is funny because I really love do, doing that now with, with behind the headlines and with this thing I do on WYXR, the, the sidebar. But at the time I was 22, 23, and I just found it really uncomfortable and invasive to be interviewing and talking to people and, and so on. And so, but I always loved being around publishing. And for me, the path to being in the operational and management side was actually technology in part. So I was in New York working at a, a business magazine um, that was still doing pay stuff. That's how old I am. You know, it was 1993 or so, give or take. It was, was, that, was that IQ or IO? Uh, I, IO. Uh, IO okay. publications, uh, right in downtown, right in the heart of Manhattan, 1500 Broadway. Yeah. And so I was part of the team that converted us to desktop publishing. It was a big old deal, you know, and made that happen. And um, I was part of the team that helped uh, establish the first web presence for them. And when I got to, to Memphis, I, and got hooked up with Bob Towery and Towery Publishing, you know, I was the original uh, what was I? I was the managing editor of the internet division, which sounds really goofy now, you know, but that's just the way it was because it was all this new. This is late 90s. Late 90s. I moved to Memphis in 95-ish. But I was somebody who could, you know, had journalism skills, editing skills. I've been a, I've been a reporter. I've been a, an editor. I could, you know, um, separate even from the writing of fiction and all that. So I could talk to all sides of the house and I, I understood the technology I understood the editorial side. I understood the, editor- the, the, the editing and publishing process side. I just enjoyed all that because I understood the tech. I just a closet computer geek. I didn't understand business. You know, I didn't know what a debit or credit was. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. And that was my, we, Bob and I always joke, and he gave me this certificate that sits in my, this diploma from Towery University. It's my MBA. Uh, I don't have an MBA, um, but that was my MBA. And, and I learned the financial side of how companies work. You know, we pitched, we did loans, we did asset back loans, we were pitching for investors. I mean, I learned everything. I learned, you know, I did all the financial modeling for, for um, Towery, which was funny because I didn't understand, I wasn't a financial guy, but I understood all enough of the parts of the operation that I could translate it to Excel and sort of say, here's what it costs to print a, we would do city guides. Here's what it costs to print an 80 page city guide. What would it cost to do across multiple markets at various sizes? And what do we pay the freelancers? And I remember I sat and just interviewed people in the company and asked them what, how they spent and how they did their work. And I wrote it all down and I put it all on a spreadsheet. And I built these spreadsheets that created these sort of projections of individual projects, hardcovers, websites, maps, all the stuff we did back there across the country. And then rolled it all up into what was basically, I didn't know it was called a PL. It was just, I was just rolling it all up into one place and it was a PL. And we used that projection model 
for you know years. Um, and when I went to the Daily News, it was the first thing I did was like I got to build a projection model for for the Daily News, and it's it's something I did when we you know prior to launching Daily Memphian, you know, when Andy and I were cooking up all this with others, but it was all this financial modeling. We go back and forth, and I'm talking about Andy Cates, my my friend and. Uh, board chair and and co-founder who you've interviewed, right? Yep, I love Andy. Yeah, and I know why y'all. I know why y'all G Hall. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> Andy's okay. Two, He's two intense Andy. dudes. Oh God, it was so bad. Like we would we would be you know so back to modeling. You know, I'd be creating all these spreadsheets, and it was a funny thing where Andy didn't know I did all that because he thought of me as more of an editorial to business person. But I was like, no, I just do, and I told him the story. And so we'd go back, and Andy's a you know very financially literate and experienced guy. We go back and forth in this spreadsheet and, and yeah, the, like two hyper guys drinking way too much coffee, talking 18 times a day, rolling through all these financial models and projections and how could we do this? What, how much money would we need to raise and all that kind of stuff. But I understand because I understand, I started with understanding how you put it together versus starting at the top of how you read a P&L. You know, that's always been the thing for me. I have to, and I kind of drive people nuts with it. Like they just want to do some math and I'm like, I'm going to need a minute because I got to build it from the ground up, you know, because that's just how I think about things financially. I don't think about debits and credits and, and, and high level numbers. I, I got to do it from the bottom mostly, you know? So yeah, that was my path to it. it was this weird mix of tech and, and just hands-on experience with, you know, publishing, especially back when it was still print was not unlike construction. I always say that to people because you, there were so many elements coming together as a physical product. There were the printers, there were the layout people, there were the writers, there were the contractors, there were the ad sales people. There were all these parts of a very tangible, almost physical, and again, when it was print, it was a very physical project. And translating that into the business and how you do that efficiently was kind of how I got into the management side of things. A couple of things I'll ask to come back there, but I've watched your show several times beyond the headlines. You interface with a lot of people and interview a lot of people. At the end of the day, if you had to boil it down, what are some of the top two or three things that you feel or you see in somebody that you're trying to understand and see and, and really decipher what they actually want as you're meeting with them, as you're interviewing with them? It doesn't matter if it's a public official. It doesn't matter if it's a business yeah. executive. It doesn't matter if it's a leader of a, of a nonprofit or if it's a a concerned citizen, whatever that might be, or a high-profile journalist, is there anything that stuck out to you that where you just feel like you've really gotten to understand people and what they actually want and what you see? I think one of the things I always, with in terms of, you know, interviewing people behind the headlines and, and now the sidebar, I, I, it's always fun when it's somebody who has great substance in the, not, in the, in the topic they're talking about. So whether that's a, a public official or a business or a nonprofit. And, and, you know, the truth is I've talked to lots of people who know the surface talking points of what they do and you can tell, you know, and it's, it's not really my, and I guess if, if I were a different person or behind the headlines was a different show, you know, I could sort of rip into them. That's not my point. I, that's not the goal. It is my goal to kind of ask them questions that becomes clear. They don't have much more than talking point, shallow answers. And, and particularly with public officials, I kind of, my view has always been everybody needs to see you all voted for this person. Here you go. And it's, I'm not going to embarrass them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tear them down. I really, the flip side of that is I really enjoy people talking to people who do know their issues with great depth and can talk about them and, and enjoy defending them in a positive way and enjoy 
you know, uh, debate in the healthiest sense about them. Uh, I do always try to ask people like, well, critics will say, you know, that this, and some people bristle. I like the people who don't bristle who say, well, I hear that, but here's why, da-da-da-da-da. And people who aren't scripted. And because I, I enjoy, you know, I think a lot of the people we have on, whatever they're doing, whether it's business or their community leaders or their elected officials, most of them are doing really, really important work. I mean, they're, and, and I want them to be successful, right? I don't want to tear people down. And so I always enjoy when people have real substance and, and a, a ability to really defend and debate and explore the issues, you know, that they have invested themselves in. And I don't like it when they're shallow. And I think some of that comes back to like, you know, maybe it's an overused phrase, but I do think people who are lifelong learners, I think that's a really important thing. You know, people who are constantly trying to improve as people, as professionals, um, they're trying to learn new things. They're trying to adapt to new things. I mean, I'm in this, you know, ever-changing business that is, you know, publishing and local journalism and digital journalism and digital publishing. And it's just constantly changing. No one's really figured it out. And I find that really exciting. There are other people who don't. They find it exhausting and frustrating, and they just want to do it the way they used to do. And so I think, and that's just not acceptable, right? Is that a learned trait? I don't know. I, that's so interesting. My kids, it's funny, like the lifelong learner phrase is part of the mission statement of, of the school that my kids went to for pre-K through eighth grade. And they really did instill that. And they did really, that school really instilled this notion of just constantly learning and adapting. And they did a really good job with that. And my kids are now 20, 22, 23, really have embraced that. They like they learning and, and reading and kind of engaging and thinking about things. And I don't know where I got it. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really, that, that's interesting. I think moving around, I, I moved a lot as a kid through the Northwest, was able to travel a fair amount for a kid from a blue collar background with my father. So there was some amount of curiosity. And then I was always a huge reader. I mean, I think just reading was a very transformative for me as somebody who hadn't been too many places. I think the reading, just enjoying that so much and writing to some degree, you know, as a junior high, high school kid instilled that. But I don't know exactly where it came from. It, it's not clear to me. So the way that you're describing about working your way up through, you know, fast moving company, a lot of things going on, a lot of chaos, different companies, et cetera. But you're talking about the spreadsheet. You're talking about breaking things down in granular detail all the time to have full context and, and to listen to what people are saying, try to trust them, not assume everyone doesn't know what they're talking about, but actually taking it a step further, putting it on the spreadsheet. You learn that at an early point in your career. So therefore, with anything you do publicly or professionally, you kind of filter each person or each subject or topic through that same thing. And if what you're seeing when you're interviewing or when you're talking to somebody, if they can't go down one, two, three, four layers deep on their areas of expertise, you realize very quickly they said a lot of things that they really don't understand. And so you try to be gentle by exposing that, but then at the same time, not just being uh, too aggressive there, but that's how you decipher who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. I think so. And I think, I mean, you know, some journalists would bristle at, and I'm a part-time journalist, right? Um, would bristle at gentle. I just want to be respectful of them as humans. But I also do, I think this, that, that absolutely what you said on the other half of that is, is allowing them to expose themselves to their lack of depth. That is part of my job you know, and, and that is important. And, and that it really varies by, again, that's more the public officials, right? Because they put themselves out there. If I have a volunteer board member from an organization, I'm never going to do that because that's just not fair. They're a volunteer board member 
for a, a for whatever reason we had this nonprofit on and and they have a great mission I, I'm going to help them frankly through that which is not what all journalists would do you know I think most would but it's it's really the the kind of public officials or the or the community business leaders who've really put themselves out there we should do this not do that and be this and not be that those are the ones where I want to kind of I, I want I want to talk in depth and I want to see if they really know what they're talking about. And, and I appreciate when they do. And I, I don't mind kind of laying it out there to people when they don't. Does that give you a sense of confidence about your own skill sets or your own understanding to where you don't take things personal if you're wrong or you don't know what you're talking about? I will say this. I would, I've gotten a lot better about not taking things personally. And just, I think some of that just comes with age, you know, and, and experience and, you know, with, in terms of the show, I mean, it's coming up on 12 years, it's 12 years in the fall. You know, I think I've got enough of a track record that I have, you know, credibility in what I do. I think when we launched Daily Memphian, you know, I, I did take criticism too personally because we just put so much into it, you know, time and there was so much money at stake and, and all these people were working so hard. And yeah, we weren't perfect. I mean, we weren't at all. We never claimed to be perfect, but uh, that was that was hard. I mean that that was probably and but was a good experience of realizing like I got to let some of that go. Um, it's often I get both too much individual credit and too much individual blame for things in the Daily Memphian, you know. And when we launched and there was there were critics and they were firing at me on social media or by email or whatever, you know, it felt real personal and I felt a sense of personal sort of wanting to defend the staff and and board and all that. And letting go of some of that is like, you know, once, once we were established and we're not perfect every day, we're just not, and we never will be, but we've gotten constantly better and we've constantly improved and we've added people and so on. I think the work speaks for itself and some of that criticism. I'm like, yeah, I mean, maybe you're right about that article or that part of that article, but judge us in the whole, not in this sentence that you feel like reveals some sort of deep-seated flaw or failure of ours. And I think that's true too, when I interview people and just in my life, you know, like we're all flawed. And so if I judge, if people judge me by my worst moments when I was, you know, 16, my God, you know, that'd be horrible. And I think, I think that's important that, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want to judge people in the whole, in the totality, in the intent and I want to be forgiving of things that, you know, we're not, we're not as forgiving, I think, as we ought to be as a society right now. Yeah. Just curious. I mean, I, I saw this and I need to be fact-checked, but in circulation from a print standpoint, I think it was 62 million around 1990 on a weekly basis. Um, mm-hmm. Wait, what, what was 62 million? Not, nothing I was involved in. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just general publication of print. Oh. newspapers around the country. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that would make sense. It was, yes, it was definitely tens of millions. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. So I need to be, again, checked on yeah, this yeah. on my yeah. source. But, and then around, I guess, 2020, I saw 24 total around yeah. the country. But my point is you're in the late 90s and you're talking about people refusing to be lifelong learners. And you're talking about being relentless at getting at things in detail. There's obviously been a Huge shift, and we're about to talk about launching the Daily Memphian digital-only newspaper, the success you and the whole team has had. We're going to get into that in detail, but is there anything that you can speak to in the late 90s that you saw that you felt uncomfortable about now looking back at 2022 
you know, that you really felt it and saw it more than 20 years ago? In terms of where publishing was going? Yes. Well, I don't, I, I don't know what I saw. I mean, I certainly, you know, it seemed obvious that this, this internet thing was not a fad. And it, it is funny to think back that there were lots of people in publishing, in traditional print publishing, who were thinking that, oh, this is just a fad. You know, the print publishing will be here forever. And, and there's some form of print publishing maybe will be with us forever, but not the, not the dominant way it was. I, I think at the time, I definitely thought it was odd that uh, I went from paying a lot of money to buy the print edition, just as a news consumer, you know, um, of the, I was a consumer of the New York times. I still am. And, you know, I, I, I tell the story too much, but, you know, when I was in New York from 90 to 95, you know, I was a grad student, I was uh, working, I had student loans, all that kind of stuff, but I bought the New York times virtually every day on the street. And I've kind of done the math and I probably spent about 300 bucks a year on the New York times. It was probably 50 cents daily and a couple bucks on the weekend then. And then they made it free online. And I remember being in, in Memphis and starting to read the New York Times on my computer and more at work because I had a high-speed connection at work, right? This is the, the late 90s and there wasn't really broadband at home quite yet. And it was free for 10, 15 years, whatever it was. And the day that the New York Times put a meaningful subscription paywall up, I paid for it, you know, just as I had always paid for the Wall Street Journal pretty much through that whole time because they never made their content free. And if you look back now, that was the single most disastrous decision, I think, that, that newspapers made in the late 90s. They, they were so arrogant. They thought they had monopolies and a kind of franchise that couldn't be broken by anything else, this print daily publication. And they made so much money. People forget now because newspapers are in such bad shape, but newspapers for decades made fortunes for people. You're just talking about really thick margins. Really thick margins, dominant positions in their marketplace in terms of the setting the political agenda and you know covering all aspects of a community and making hand over fist money, right? I mean, just hand over fist. And it was incredible groupthink in the worst way in the late 90s into the 2000s. Like, let's make it all free. Let's make it free in Yahoo. Let's make it free in Excite. And let's make it free in you know, Alta Vista, all the old search engines and Google, great. One more place to make it free. And then, you know, Facebook comes along, great. We can, you know, put our articles on Facebook and make them free. And meanwhile, there were changes beyond newspapers control, right? I mean, department store advertising, I get in the weeds in this, but, you know, department store advertising was drying up. That wasn't newspapers fault. Classifieds were going to the internet and they're becoming free. That would Newspapers could have handled that better, but they 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 were some some of that just was going to happen. But the thing they did control was the content they wrote and produced, and they made it free. And in that time, over the last twenty years, major you know uh, newspapers in this country, city you know, now I'm not talking New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I'm just talking city you know, Commercial Appeal went in a twenty year period went from 250 people in the Memphis newsroom to about 27 today. And that's not atypical. In, in many cities, it was worse. 90% reductions in the newsroom staff. And there were, there were going to be reductions because of these outside forces, but giving the content away for free was the single dumbest thing that newspapers ever did. And they're trying to, you know, if you look at the trends, more and more newspapers are trying to put up, you know, New York Times started it. They got really smart about it. And they, they were in trouble, not bankruptcy trouble, but they were in trouble and they realized that the only way they could really turn it around and invest in the news they wanted to was to put up a paywall. 
And now they are growing and growing and adding people and they are very profitable and very successful. And around the country, local newspapers are increasingly trying to play catch up and build, you know, meaningful subscriber bases and subscriber revenue. But they there's been a decade, two decade long fever dream where whole everyone got their news for free. You know, my kids never paid for news. They don't know anything about that. And I hadn't paid for news in forever, you know, I mean, uh, until the last five years of, of more and more publications getting serious about payroll. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, Are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He's lucky he he was not... Cold. They just didn't get him. No. Where no. Did, like where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house. Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house. Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. I read in 2007 that uh, Commercial Appeal had 146,000 subscribers. Does that sound right? Yeah, their weekly, their Sunday distribution was was probably, you know, maybe even their daily in 2007, but certainly their Sunday would have been, that, that makes sense. From your goal now, and then from how you've seen it in the past, if you take like the Boston Globe or the Tribune, you know, some of these just prestigious and well-known papers, or you take something like here in the Memphis market, what's a reasonable goal from a percentage of the local population standpoint from a subscriber base? Um, no, I don't know. No one knows. I mean, because it's just really not been done in a meaningful way. It's not 150,000, you know, and in in its peak... Probably, I think probably give or take 20 years ago, the CA would, had as many as 300,000 uh, Sunday Sunday editions were sold, subscribers, news, you know, news uh, uh, pickup in the grocery store, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, 
it's it's a different mix now because you know where we are right now at Daily Memphian, we have 400, 450,000 unique visitors every month. So that's a meaningful number relative to a, a population of a million. We have about 100,000, 105,000 individual email subscribers to various newsletters and, and, and daily, monthly, weekly type things that we do. And we have coming up on 17,000 um, paid subscribers. That 17,000, it's 16,7 or something like that represents, you know, people can share, that's allowed. You can share with your spouse, you can share with up to two people. So that probably represents, we don't really, we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have a good number on that because of, you know, internet privacy, which is important, but we probably, you know, this probably represents about 25,000 households. I would say that's 16, seven, um, 17,000 paid subscribers. And so I don't know where in terms of paid subscribers, you know, we always say our goal is to get to 25,000 more since we're talking, you know, details, really what we want to get to is $3 million a year in ideally three and a half million in subscription revenue. And that could be 20,000 at a higher price or 25,000 at a lower price, right? I mean, you can get the math to get to that three to three and a half million. And that's what our, that's our goal. But it, it's an odd situation. I mean, you know, where Memphis has, you know, the CA, I give great credit to the people um, Mark Russell, the editor over there. I mean, this is not his fault that the CA went from 250 to 26 people, you know, or any of the journalists over there. Those were corporate ownership decisions. And so Memphis has a wealth of options right now, right? We have a robust Daily Memphian. We have, although much smaller, they do really good work over at the CA. They have some really good journalists. Um, that competition is good for the city. We have a really solid uh, business journal. We, you know, the Memphis Flyer, Memphis Magazine Group, thanks to their local really civic-minded ownership is still still doing its thing. And there are lots of niche publications, MLK 50 and High Ground and all these other ones. And so Tri-State Defender, I, I wrongly left that out. I mean, so it's not clear where we are with, with what people are willing to pay for. There's still, I get people who are saying, all your news should be free. I'm like, I wish it could be free, you know, but it can't. That's not sustainable financially. And so I don't know, but it's not going to be what, because if you look back, a part of that 150,000 or like go to the heyday, 300,000 Sunday copies, papers back then were not just news sources, right? They were vehicles. They were, they were self-contained printed internets. They had news, they had entertainment in the comics and so on. They had classifieds, which were a wealth. I mean, think about the resource back in the day that classifieds meant in terms of jobs, cars, houses, apartments, lost and found, everything. That's just how my kids could not, I'm sure they can't begin to process how important classifieds were, but that's, that's what they, it was a huge section, you know, on the Sunday edition, all the coupons, all that offers, all the advertising, advertising mattered back then. I mean, the, that's how you found out it was the week that the school uh, supplies would be on sale was in your local newspaper. You didn't really find that anywhere else. So that resource that was the local newspaper will never come back. We don't have any ambition. I don't know of any local news site that has an ambition to launch comprehensive classifieds and comprehensive, all this stuff that the, that the paper used to do. And so it's uncharted territory. I don't know what that number should be, but I do feel like we keep growing. We keep reaching more people. And that means we're going in the right direction. Is it a challenge for you on managing talent with your journalists? Is that a challenging piece of your role or is it not as much 
compared to other industries or markets or deals? Oh, I think it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it is a challenge. Um, it, it's a challenge for a bunch of reasons. One, you've got a real, just a, a range of, of skills and talents and jobs in, you know, we're, we have about 53 people, right? So 37 in the newsroom, we're trying to get to 40 in the newsroom. And, you know, then we got advertising and, you know, uh, technology and business people. And, and then we have another 20 freelancers and contractors doing all kinds of stuff. And the it's, it goes from everything from, you know, writers and the people, the bylines people see to the editors and the digital producers behind them that whose names people don't see to the ad sales people and so on. So there's just a lot of different skill sets and different people. You've got a group of veterans who have watched, you know, think if you've been, if you're a 20 year veteran at a, at a Metro paper in this country, you watched 90% of your friends and colleagues get laid off over the last 20 years. I mean, think about what that does to your psychology about the business you're in, about your, your financial security, about your trust in management, all those things that happen when, in, and that story is just typical across the whole industry. I mean, you know, the, the tens of thousands of people who were laid off from newsrooms. So the veterans you know, have a deserved and understandable PTSD. I mean, I think, I think our folks are great. I'm not being critical of them, but, you know, they, they've got some of that, understandably. And I have to show understanding and empathy for that. Coming over here, they got away in some ways, you know, whether they came from wherever they came from. And they didn't, people came from all kinds of different publications locally and nationally. I think we don't have that history, but they have that history. So there's that. You also have the thing of, you know, we have a lot of creative-minded people, the, the writers and reporters and others, and, you know, they can be just odd. <laughs> They're not, you know, I mean, I have a friend who, who works at a, um, uh, you know, my girlfriend works at an uh, architecture firm, and there's just a lot of creatives, and they're super talented, good people who are really don't think in a business-minded way all the time. I have a friend who runs a big ad agency, it's the same thing. A lot of them just, a lot of the creatives just don't understand the business side of stuff. And I, in my career, I've always been around a lot of creatives or, and or managed a lot of creatives. And a lot of them just don't understand the business side of thing and the realities of that. And that's, that's okay. It just creates certain challenges in terms of managing and sort of setting expectations and explaining decisions in, in decision-making. So- I read this quote. It might have been from Bob again. So about you. His successful management style, however, departs from the norm. I never knew him to stray from the grace and humor with his business acumen and point to the successful humanistic writer at the core of his of this talented individual. Not trying to blow pleasantries here, but um, I'm gonna have to buy Bob a drink. <laughs> yeah, several. What can you share about keeping the main thing the main thing, taking a big swing at something? Burning significant a significant amount of money, you know, g- going for something publicly, leading a group or an organization of creatives, but also being described in that way. I'm sure, you have your critics like I have and like we all have, but yeah, sure. While still being able to connect and show empathy, while also being able to get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is, um, you know, I'm older, you know, I mean, and and you know, I like, like most all of us have had some tragedies in my life and, and some real sadnesses. And so, you, you know, that, but then I've also had these incredible joys, you know, which very much include my kids. 
And so I try to sort of keep that in perspective that there is a reason they call this work, right? And I feel like the work we do is really important. I mean, journalism, local journalism is, is really important. And we, we can do things on a given day that have real impact on, on actual human beings in, in an actual city, you know, and communities within that city. But it's still work, right? And so I think that I try to, that just something, I don't know that I always really embraced when I was younger and more impatient and, and probably more insecure, you know, frankly, because a lot of that is, is a masking of, of insecurity. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think some of this is funny, you know, I mean, work is a funny place. There's a reason the office is so successful as a, <laughs> as a, um, I mean, truly, I mean, this is not the office environment, you know, the daily Memphian, it's not that, but there's a reason you, know, you think about that show it worked in what, like, I can't remember how many versions of it they've done. They've done it around the world in different languages, different cultures, making fun of the workplace works across all these um, countries, cultures, and languages. And it is kind of funny. And we do sort of absurd things sometimes. And I can't help but point it out. I say absurd things sometimes because <laughs> I'm, you know, at a company meeting or whatever. And I, I don't need to run from that, that we are sometimes kind of silly and, and, and we make big mistakes and, you know, you can, you got to learn from them, but you also, you can laugh at yourself and laugh at our foibles while also getting ahead, right. And trying to improve from them and trying to realize, you know, yeah, we, we screwed up today. That was bad, you know, and let's laugh it off and learn from it. And Andy's great about that. You know, I mean, Andy and I, you know, I mean, we, if we, I would say, I mean, if Andy and I didn't also have as much fun together as we do, um, I don't think we'd have, we'd have been able to do this because it was just too hard. It was too stupid. I mean, it was too like, I mean, it's just too, you know, too much risk, too stressful to not sometimes be able to laugh at like, oh my God, what do we do? You know? And, and like what, can you share something there? <laughs> like uh, anything that's okay for you to share? Most of it, most of it. No. Um, my favorite one was, so we would do, especially in early on, we would go to all these joint meetings. And um, so we'd meet somewhere and, you know, we'd meet with somebody, maybe whether we were talking to them about sponsorship or just trying to let them know what we were doing, or we were recruiting somebody and we'd meet and then we'd, inevitably both of us had to be somewhere else. So we'd be like, well, let's call, let's, we wanted to debrief the meeting. And so we'd um, get in the car and talk to each other. And so we'd be talking in the car and not often we'd be like driving next to each other, talking to each other. So it was just, we do this constantly. And one time he pulled out, it was actually out at WKNO. We'd gone out to meet with them and just kind of talk about what we were doing and kind of, you know, just talk to them. It was just one of those meetings. And he pulled out a KNO and he turned the wrong way. And I knew he was going down a dead end. And so I, I just waited and I was in my car behind him and we're talking and talking. He goes, Hey, about the meeting and how it gone. And he was like, Hey, do I just keep going this way? I go, Oh yeah, definitely. And he goes, so I, there's a turn down here. I go, yeah, there's definitely a turn. So he's driving. I'm watching him in his white SUV drive down there. And he's, he's like, there's a fence. There's this is a fence. I go, yeah, yeah you just got to go right past the fence and take a right and just go down the hill. What's well, a <laughs> gully. I don't even know what's down there. And I, I really was, I was laughing so hard at myself because it's so juvenile. But I was kind of like, oh my God, he might drive off because I'm being so confident and he's listening. And I can see him just driving, not at high speed. <laughs> he was going high speed. I would have said something. But he just kind of kept crawling towards us. He's like, I don't see it. I don't see it. And he finally goes, oh my God. And he swore at me. And I said, yeah. And, you know, it, it would, it's just, it, we're, you know, fairly juvenile. And he and I, and that came out of the fact that he and I were neighbors and friends. 
we were friends for 20 years before we ever did this. We'd never even been on a board together. I'd been on a board with his wife for four years for a, a Great St. Luke school and which being on a school board is very intense. And it's, so I'd work, Allison was VP. I was president. I, there were just days where we were talking all the time. Um, George, may he rest in peace. I mean, got me on the OB, OPC board and I had, you know, worked with George a lot and even being a, Andy's and Staley's mom, I'd done a little tiny bit of work with, but, but Andy and I just always joked around together. And so it would have really sucked and really, really be not worth it for me personally, if doing this work that is important and stressful and, and risky and all that, if we couldn't still joke about things, you know, and, and we have been able to, and I think that that's important with, I mean, some of these people I've worked with before at other places, you know, in some cases for a decade. And if we couldn't still joke about some stuff, you know, that, that wouldn't be worth it. For those that don't know, including myself and people not from here, how did the Daily News become the Daily Memphian? Was it just acquired by the foundation? No, actually, it's a, it's a totally fair assumption. Um, actually, the Daily News still exists. So, so the, 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 quick, the story here is the Daily News, I started work after I left Towery Publishing in 2002, I went over to the Daily News to become publisher and CEO. It's a family-owned company that had been owned by the same family, uh, Peter Scott and his, uh, his stepfather, um, before him, uh, John Paul Jones, who passed away during COVID. And they'd owned that, fam- they, that paper since 1886. And I was brought on in 2003. Peter uh, wanted to invest more in the editorial side of that paper. It was traditionally a paper of record, you know, public notices, public records, a little bit of news. He had gone off and, and started a, another company. He really wanted to, the, the Daily News, not to, to become a metro paper, but to just be more meaningful to his credit. So he hired, brought me in to do that. I brought in more editorial people. We ultimately got to a newsroom of about eight, nine, a, a lot of freelancers. That's when Bill Drees came over. James Overstreet came over from um, the, who'd been at the MBJ, USA Today, Commercial Appeal, Dom Wade, um, Ashley Mackey was there. A lot, a lot of great people. I'm forgetting the uh, Stacey Weedor and Lance Weedor, all kinds of really great people have been there. And I, I apologize for leaving some out, but so we carved out this niche of a business and politics and kind of whatever we want, little daily paper. Then we launched what was called the Memphis News, which was a free weekly paper. And we weren't the biggest paper in town, but we were, we had a really, we had kind of a, a great niche of serious, you know, fair-minded news. And that was then in conjunction with behind the headlines starting in 12, almost 12 years ago now. And it was kind of this thing where we stayed the same size as the CA was declining through no fault of the people here in Memphis we sort of got bigger and people used to joke with me in a, you know, darkly like, boy, when are you guys going to take over for the CA? And I'd say, well, that's a daunting, I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but that's a daunting task. And this is when they had 75 people and 60 people. And, you know, so what happened was when Gannett bought the paper, it was from scripts to a kind of intermediary, then to Gannett. And this all happened, you know, in 2016 ish, a year in Gannett, laid off a third of the staff in Memphis. I remember exactly where I was when I heard. Um, it was, I was standing in Cafe Keo, and actually uh, there were some CA people, I think, in there actually that I knew. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And because it was horrible, you know, third of the staff. And, and that's when they began to move. After that, they began to, the, the branding of the Tennessee Network and, you know, branding and sharing content across Nashville, Knoxville, the suburbs around Nashville, Jackson, Tennessee, because they owned everything but Chattanooga. And um, it really made people mad. 
you know, and nobody really liked that. And that was a decision at corporate, not locally. And somewhere in there, Andy, who had always, we'd always talked about news and he'd been, you know, a, a really great fan of the daily news, but just a fan. And like I said, we'd never worked together. And he called and said, hey, let's have lunch. And I said, all right. And, and we didn't usually have lunch. We would just run into each other or whatever, you know? And so, and I could tell he had an agenda and he was really concerned about what was going to happen to the city, given the trajectory that, that the CA seemed to be on. And we talked about what could we do? And we talked and we talked and we looked and we planned. And like I was saying earlier, we're making spreadsheets and, and looking at other models around the country and what had other people done. And we ultimately decided um, there was at some point talk about like, could, you know, would we just invest in the daily news and, and make it, you know, but in the end, what we did was we wanted to launch a whole new organization. The names are similar enough that there's confusion. And then all of the editorial staff, me and then plus me from the daily news came over and, and, and to the daily Memphian. And then we hired 10 plus people from the commercial appeal and couple from uh, the, ultimately from the business journal and, and so on and other places, but they are two separate entities and the daily news does still exist. It's a little confusing because we also, the daily news buys um, a small amount of content from the daily Memphian and publishes it five days a week, but they're separate. Um, they just have a, a contractual arrangement. It gets confusing too, because I'm CEO over there, but that's just part of me just doing, wearing multiple hats. Um, but the, we needed it to be independent and we also needed it to be the daily Memphian to be independent and we needed it to be a nonprofit and, uh, that, because it's just such a difficult business. We really couldn't look people in the eye and say, Hey, you should invest money with us. It's going to be a great way to put your money and you'll get a great return on investment. But we could look at people and say, this is a great civic investment. It's important for the community. It's important for the city. And there will be a return on this civic investment in terms of, you know, a commitment to local news, fair-minded, broad-based, and so on. You said Andy was concerned about the trajectory of the city. The CA, the commer- this commercial appeal. Oh, so he was? Yeah, it was not that he was concerned. Thank you, because I would hate to say that. Because that No, he was not concerned about the traje- trajectory of the city. I mean, Andy and his family have been, you know, obviously a huge part of the growth and you know, progress in the city from the Green Line to the to Stack Soulsville to Crosstown to, you know, uh, George, I mean, with Overton Park Conservancy and just charter schools and all kinds of things they've been involved in. So Andy and his fam- whole family are incredible believers in this city. And this city has had lots of its challenges, right? But it's people like the Cates family and many other family, a Hyde family. I'm going to miss a bunch of people who have who have believed in the city and invested in the city, whether that's nonprofits or donations, or that's, you know, businesses that have stayed here or grown here. And, um, but what Andy saw, because he was and is so civic minded was just, Hey, if the city, which is, is making all this progress. So this, you know, just so many good things are starting to happen. If they're not covered properly, fairly and independently, but if they're not, if they're not covered, you know, if all it is, is crime of the day and top 10 rooftop bars in Nashville, then where are we? And there's been, as there's been all this, this national decline in local news and more and more of a spotlight on it. I mean, there are real academic studies that have been done that when cities lose their local newspaper, the amount voting goes down, civic engagement goes down. Um, think people get more polarized and we have enough of that nationally already. Um, there's even studies that show that, that borrowing and spending costs 
for cities, counties, you know, gov- local governments go up because there's less of a watchdog asking, why are you buying all those dump trucks two years in a row? You know, why are you putting all your money in those places? And so it was, it was a worry about, about the lack, the, the, what seemed to be a trajectory of, of, wow, they're going to, they're going to cut the commercial pill to the bone. And truthfully, I mean, I think in hindsight, we can see that had we not launched, they would have cut even more. I mean, they're at about 26, 27 in Memphis now. But if you look at the Jacksonville paper, which is also owned by Gannett, and Jacksonville is a similarly sized city, in some ways a bigger city, their newsroom is under 20. I think it's around 17. And that's for Jacksonville. You know, that's that's crazy. Was the Texan the first paper that launched digital only? Texas Tribune was one of the first, and it's kind of the granddaddy of online-only nonprofit news sites. So they they deserve great credit for that. They launched, I think they're in their 11th year, uh, maybe 12. And they are a statewide uh, newspaper that covers primarily, they're based in Austin, they primarily cover, you know, state house issues and statewide issues. And they were really nice to us, really great to us. We talked to them a bunch before we launched. They, they have a different model. I could get into all that stuff, but they're, they're one of, the, one of the, the real forerunners of this whole nonprofit journalism, local, but they are statewide. There are a number, like Cal Matters has been around a long time. They're also statewide. There's a couple other ones out there that have been statewide, but in terms of truly city, you know, locally focused, there are lots of niche ones. You know, they do politics or they do business or they do arts and culture. We're one of the very few online only, certainly nonprofits, that is launched that is just focused on one city and has a broad-based mission from food to high school sports, to politics, to business, to schools, to, you know, you, you name it. We try to cover it. I can't say we cover everything, but we are anomalous that way in which in a way that still surprises me. I mean, we're the biggest in the country really substantially. So, and I I'm kind of surprised. So it wasn't why we launched to be the biggest. And I guess to go back to what you said a minute ago, this was very strategic from your standpoint and from Andy's standpoint and the other people that contributed from the start where you talked about, you must, I felt like the way you framed it psychologically, if you lose your local paper, A, you're getting less thorough reporting on your local issues, but B, you're just seeing the negativity over and over again. And there's a quote that I read from Andy said, it's a big, small city, the values connectivity and needs more of it. And it's a civically engaged populace. Yeah. So I guess, you know, behind the story, were these things deeper rooted uh, strategically to really try to help expose and make sure the movement and the traction would be there and would be done well while also trying to, in some ways, rally the community itself? Yeah, I think so. And and to be unapologetic that we are pro-Memphis. Being pro-Memphis doesn't mean that we're a cheerleader. It doesn't mean that we are afraid to, to question decisions and hold people accountable, but we are unabashedly pro-Memphis. And, you know, that I don't have any problem with that. And I think it, I think there was a time when most newspapers didn't have a problem with that. What happened was all these newspapers got bought up by big chains because they were, like I was saying, they were so profitable. Um, and then the rules around ownership of papers changed. And, and they, later the same thing happened with TV news with local TV stations. And so they became a little more cynical and a little more jaded about the communities they were in. Um, You also had a, a, back to this kind of being pro-Memphis, you had a a dynamic that a lot of people would move through these chains 
newspaper chains or just, I mean, it was such a thriving market for local news. So you would start your career in Jackson, Tennessee. You'd go to Shreveport. Then you'd go to um, maybe Knoxville. Then you'd get to Memphis. Then you'd want to be, you know, a big city, a Chicago, St. Louis. And you're all, everyone's trying to get to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, or Boston Globe. Maybe the LA Times back in the heyday. Maybe Chicago Tribune to it in the heyday. Well, what that meant was you just had these constantly, these people traveling through the newsrooms. They were on a, a career ladder. Same thing happens in a lot of uh, arts-oriented nonprofits. It's not just meant that it's a national thing. It's a kind of staircase. A good friend of mine is an, a museum director, and he's been in like four different markets over the course of his 30-year career. Um, my dad, I mentioned, was a superintendent and then a regional superintendent. Same thing with superintendents. They tend to be people who move around you know, up from small markets to bigger markets. Not always, but they tend to be. And there's not something inherently wrong with that, but it does create a bit of a disconnection from the community because you're only here for a couple of years, punching the clock to try to go to a bigger market. But with that comes and in the innate and necessary skepticism that goes with journalism, it did, I think, begin. And then again, back to the dynamic I was talking about earlier, then the cuts start. You're suddenly not as career mobile more and more of your friends, colleagues, and so on are getting fired or laid off. You are maybe pushed into a different beat or you're having to cover multiple things. You can't cover any one thing as well as you used to because you're covering for the people who just got laid off. You know, benefits are frozen, raises are capped. And that skepticism, I'm not saying this is everyone. I'm just saying it is a real dynamic in the the metro news industry. That skepticism becomes cynicism and it turns. It's interesting the way you frame that. It's very transitory and the roots aren't deep. And to me, it's fascinating hearing you the way that you've seen these issues and how things have changed and then the benefits from a from a digital standpoint. But then I can't also but help but think about families or individuals that for whatever reason get to a place to where they have a significant amount of assets. And, you know, I think it's easy when you're when you're younger and you're growing up and you read Forbes or Wall Street Journal or, you know, you think about this lifestyle or accessibility or living wherever you want, and that's fine. I mean, I know there's people that do that, but I've, been, I've just been very surprised by, by families that have significant amounts of wealth, and all they really care about is where they're from or where their roots are at that point. And there's a, there's a fellow that I interviewed earlier this week, his family, I mean, private, you know, their family sold their company for $3 billion. And I just did an interview with him on Tuesday that'll come out on this podcast soon. But he's not talking about anything other than what they're doing on the East Coast where they live. And so thinking here about the Daily Memphian or thinking about the Conservancy or thinking about the Green Line, you know, all these different things, it just blows up this perspective you know, of just accessibility, living, you know, individualistic kind of thinking and behaviors. And then you start to see the strategy behind what you're laying out. And then you're also thinking about certain individuals all across the country and different markets all over the country that actually have the resources to help make things happen. And they can live anywhere they want, but people are just, they're focused on where they're living. And, uh, yeah. and you can't get these things off the ground if you don't have the firepower to do it. Uh, I would yeah. think. No, I mean, I, I think all that's true. And and I think in, in Memphis, you have this amazing dynamic of people who are very invested in the city. I mean, you know, both newer money and older money that's very invested in 
that, you know, for all the challenges in, in Memphis, that they are working really hard on a granular level and on a big level to try to make things better. And, and, you know, I used to say that I was in the, the, uh, the chamber of commerce has this chairman circle. It's, you know, some of the top 100, 125 companies. I was in there back with daily news for quite a few years. And I was always really struck by, there were a lot of really wealthy people in that room who could have been doing a lot of other things. You know, they could have been at Pickwick. They could have been down, you know, on 30A at their, their beach house or beach condo. Um, they could have been golfing that day. And instead they were in this room, not to the benefit of their companies per se, it was just to the, or at all in some cases, I mean, almost to the detriment, they were focused on civic issues and what they could do as business leaders to make change and make progress. And, and that, I think that that isn't everybody in Memphis and I'm not idealizing everyone, but there are a lot of people like that here who are truly invested in the, in the, the improvements and the betterment of the city. And they don't have to be. They, they're not getting anything from that, you know, personal, personally or, or economically. And it's, uh, it's great, you know, and, and this thing, Daily Memphian, is definitely one expression of that or one result of that, that impulse that people had and have. Yeah. To the start of this, I read that your goal was 6 million, but you raised eight. Is that, is that true? I think, I think that's true. And we've, we've since, we've raised a total of 10 and a half million in philanthropic dollars. We've generated, I don't, I should know this off. I mean, last year we did almost three and a quarter in earned revenue subscriptions, advertising and services. You know, that number, we hopefully will get up to closer to 4 million next year. And our goal has always been to get to where we're not totally, we're, we're little or no dependence on philanthropic dollars. That makes us very different than, I don't know if it makes us better, but it makes us different than, you know, Texas Tribune and a lot of other nonprofit news organizations around the country, which are unabashedly, what they want to do is make, you know, is just, just survive on, on philanthropic dollars. We want to, to survive without philanthropic dollars. Did y'all break even at three and a half or did y'all? No, no. Yeah. We, um, we were never projected to break even until, you know, in, until our fifth, well, until after our fifth year. So that three and a quarter was against a $5 million budget. Last year, we got a lot of various COVID related PPP and ERTC and so on. So actually we may well show a profit Next year, we, it's funny to run it. I've never run a nonprofit. I've always run for-profit companies and I've, I've been on nonprofit boards, but everything comes out on your 990s. So it's, I've always been at privately held companies too, where we didn't have to tell anybody anything, but now it's kind of like, eh, whatever. So yeah, we'll, we, we'll, we'll probably be break even our profit with that one time government money in play, but we'll, we'll lose money this year, but we'll lose less money than last year in terms of earned revenue. And we keep growing our subscriptions and advertising and, sponsorships and services. And we'll, you know, we, we think we'll get to the point that we are, and, and let, let me, this is a qualification, but the core operational be break even. There's a certain amount of stuff we do. Like we're free in all the schools, we're free in the libraries, we're free with really most any community nonprofit organization that, that for whatever reason is like, Hey, we work with people who should have access to news, but you know, can't afford it. You know, we'll work with them to make that happen. And we cover the all of Memphis you know, just despite whether it generates traffic and subscriptions or not. So some amount of what we do may require, probably will require, you know, philanthropic dollars, but we want to be 90% of our budget is, is plus is earned revenue. The other side of that too is, you know, we could 
we could pro- we could be break even in six to nine months if, and we're not going to do this, but if we just said, you know what, we just want to break even, um, we're going to jack up the price. You know, we're $107 a year right now. I, I hear from people all the time, that's not enough. You know, I'd pay twice that. We cover, like I said, the all of Memphis. We could just sort of focus on the things that generate, you know, traffic. We could jack the price up and we'd become kind of a, a slice of Memphis publication. That's not our mission. You know, our mission is to cover all of Memphis and to be in, in as much as possible accessible to everyone in Memphis. And that means that we have to have a bigger mission, bigger expense, and we, we, we're not going to be, you know, profitable on just the core, really revenue generating things we do. I could do a whole hour on strategy and uh, the execution, but I, I would like to ask one thing. I saw where y'all used a group called Piano. Is that right? Yeah, Piano is is the third-party software we use for subscription management. Um, anybody who signs up, you're signing up through Piano. And I saw that I read some stuff back in the late '90s that you just knew how to you knew how to grow. You knew how, it sounds like you just have an ability to understand. You know the numbers to look at, and you know the indicators to watch to grow the subscription. And so with Piano, I know y'all y'all went for it. I, I know you said you're gonna y'all raised ten up to this point. And I told you, I thought I read, y'all are going to try to raise six. Yeah. I've also, as you mentioned earlier, I've, I've done an interview with Andy and it's no secret that he, that he likes to go big and it's no secret <laughs> that, you know, you have a background as well. I'm just curious, is there anything that you can speak to that's been either instrumental or harmful by totally going for it and being able to use data and analytics through like clear information and KPIs to help you accelerate the growth that you've had that maybe other people might not have the privilege of if they were not as well capitalized as you were? Yeah. I mean, it's funny that um, the, on the analytics and the data and, you know, we actually probably, I mean, we have almost more data and analytics on reader, user, subscriber behavior than we can even make sense of. So, um, so it's, it's, you know, because it's the internet and everything's tracked, we can't necessarily track every person at the, you know, I know this is Sam, what Sam is doing on the site, but we can see what the behaviors of readers and subscribers and so on can do all day long. I mean, I can pull up on my phone more information than I can even begin to process. The flip side of that is, and so, and not every publisher has that. We did, we use Piano, we use a, a company called Parsley that does all our analytics. We do, we have all these, like, you know, these sources of, of data it's a little more than we can reasonably process. So we're kind of in that in-between space. Like if you, the New York Times, you know, they're the, they're the, the absolute, you know, brilliant leaders at this whole use of data in news publishing to convert readers into subscribers. There, I think I read at one point, their analytics team is like 50 people who are just, you know, digging through all this data and trying to make sense and trying to incremental shifts in the site that will drive incremental increases in subscribers. I mean, you can do it. We do as much of that as we can, but we, we have an analytics department of zero. You know, we have me, we have my chief uh, audience uh, officer, we have my CTO, we have my product development person, all a million other things to do. And we try to come together and sort of make sense of, of the data as best we can. The other part of that, though, is that we needed that to do what we want to do, you know, in, in terms of the going big thing. But the other thing is that, that this news, local news particularly, 
you know, websites, all that have not been data-driven organizations. They've been journalism-driven, which is important. And is, you know, this is all about the journalism. But how do you use the data that shows reader behaviors and time of day they're reading and what they're clicking on and what they're not? How do you use that? Um, that hasn't been part of the industry until the New York Times really broke the mold and said, you got to get smart about this. And everybody down to the smallest publication needs to get smart about it. But like I was saying earlier, you know, news sites were basically, I mean, they lived in a 10, 20 year fever dream of just making everything free, generate as much traffic as you can, get whatever advertising you get from the advertising, but really you're a print publication, right? That's, I mean, even still Gannett, Gannett's a, I think a $2 billion revenue wise publication, digital subscriptions, and they make a lot of noise about it. They broke a million something in digital subscriptions. I think digital subscriptions are barely 3%, 3.5% of their total revenue. So no one, people, the industry did not get serious about subscriptions, analytics, reader, user behavior. They're still barely beginning to get serious about it. Do you know Gannett's top line revenue? It's about $2 billion a year. Do you know what their net income on that is? Don't. I mean, they are profitable. Um, they've, you know, they've been cutting, but they, 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 are, they are still profitable. It's more in the single digit percentage, if I remember right. And versus what they used to do, but yeah. And I could have looked this up, but this is the problem, I guess, because they have an obligation to Wall Street. And you said that the digital is only 3% of their top line revenue. Digital subscriptions, yes. So that's why the Daily Memphian was ripe for disruption by going digital only, because they could build it from the ground up. And nobody that has an obligation to analysts in Wall Street would want to do right. that unless they spun something out separately. So they're almost, and that's the aggregation. And they're just going to keep riding it out to report their earnings from a stock price standpoint. But they're, yeah. they're, they're just continuing to lag behind from a human behavior and preference standpoint. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I, I think that, you know, their total digital numbers are in the, I can't, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it might be 20 or even 25%. Most of that is these marketing services things they do. They basically work as an ad agency for clients, for advertiser clients, and they help them do campaigns, not just on Gannett properties, but on Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on. That's great. I mean, I'm a business person, so they, they should make that money. You, you, one could imagine them spinning out that marketing services group because it's, it's really a very, it's an, it's an ad agency within the company and they work with all kinds of people who may or may not be Gannett advertisers. You could see them spinning that out and that would reduce a lot of their revenue growth, certainly on the digital side. But basically what's happening is they're seeing these print reductions. They're still profitable on print, but they're just because they keep cutting, they keep cutting people and paper and property, right? I mean, they, they sit, they're selling all their locations, they're centralizing all their printing, they're cutting their print reduction, their print footprint, the size of the paper, the number of pages, um, and they're, they're, you know, steadily reducing the number of people because they've consolidated so many people and because they're just, you know, in many cases spending less in the newsroom. They're not alone in this. Alden, McClatchy, which is now I think owned by Alden or Apollo, I, I lose track. They're all doing the same thing, but they're all fundamentally print revenue driven companies as much as they talk about digital. And if you look at what they do on their earnings calls, and I do look just because I'm curious when I read the transcripts and look at the, the reports, they're talking this big number about top line growth and the total number of digital subscribers, but their net rates, they don't talk about that. And the analysts don't ask them. And if you read, they're, they're not, they're doing this just pittance of revenue, but 
Wall Street's like, oh, they got digital growth. They got digital growth. Whereas if you read the, the quarterly reports from the New York Times, they're talking about analytics and KPIs and what are we doing to build meaningful revenue out of digital subscriptions. And they are building, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's huge. I think their last report with the, the they bought the athletic. So with the purchase of the athletic, they may have report been the first time they reported like 51% of their revenue came from digital versus print. They're, they're, they're almost there. Like, and they are navigating this. Like it's just, it's impressive as anything because it wasn't predetermined that that would be the case. And again, the local news organizations and particularly the big chains are just there when you really look at the numbers and I'm first to say, it's an incredibly difficult business. This is not easy, but they're, they're not, they're not making the transformation. I mean, they're just not. Yeah. So you kind of gave two case studies there, uh, how to do it right. And then maybe how not. Not yet. And I, and I hope, you know what, I want to make sure I say this. I hope Gannett survives. I hope they figure it out and they thrive. You know, I mean, that this was, you know, local news. I believe in local news for every community in this country. And it, it is just proven anecdotally and now increasingly academically that communities don't thrive when they don't have local news. And if Gannett doesn't figure this out, they own 250 or something like that papers across the United States. If Alden, if these big chains don't figure it out, not every city can build a daily Memphian. And certainly not every Town. Think of think of you know um, um, cities or whatever you want to call them cities or towns under seventy five thousand. Do they have the resources, the the economic, philanthropic, you know, individual resources to build and replace their paper like the Daily Memphian or like other people are trying to do this? They don't, and that's not good. It's really bad for a society. I read a hundred daily and a thousand weekly. That's what yeah. I saw. The Gannett had yeah. Yeah, that includes a lot of their European properties. I kind of take those out because it's such a different business. But, I wasn't um, contesting. I was just looking through. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Um, how do you know if you had to boil down about keeping the main thing, your focus, are there two or three things that you know that you can look at every day or every week to know if you're growing the paper and if you're putting out good work? Is there anything that you've learned at this point to help give you clarity amidst everything else going on? Well, I mean, it, it's a combination of things of, of subscription growth, you know, conversion and um, of readers and subscribers. It's um, retention of existing subscribers. That's one thing that's really bad in our industry is churn and losing people. And our, our churn numbers are, are much, much lower than, than most of our peers, but it's hard. And it's this, you know, it's subscriber by subscriber, um, communication by communication and so on. I look at traffic, certainly. People get a little too hung up on traffic in our industry. I mean, it's not just about traffic. It's about retent- It's about engagement time. You know, we have really high engagement time. So the, um, the example I would use there is many years ago, we did a story. It was probably an Associated Press story that Elvis Presley's grandson had died. We put it up. It's five paragraphs. Very sad. Young man. Um, doesn't live in Memphis. Never had. But it was Elvis related. So we put it up. It blows up on traffic, you know, tens of thousands of page views like that because it's Elvis, right? We got zero subscriptions and the engagement time was in the tens of seconds, right? I mean, it just, it just was what it was. It went viral on SEO and, you know, so on. And we had to do it because it's newsworthy, but we, it wasn't going to do anything meaningful. That same week we did Tom Bailey, who's since retired, but one of our really fabulous reporters, veteran reporter in Memphis, 
he did a story on a mid-century modern building in the middle of Memphis that was going to maybe be torn down and they're going to put a car wash there. It probably did certainly single digit thousands of readers. It converted 13 you know, subscribers in a day. Um, the engagement time was two minutes plus, uh, which is a lot. That may or may not sound like a lot, but it's a lot. It, I mean, it's, it's astronomical, frankly, in our industry. Given that eight second attention span. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the comments on the story were many. And it was just like exactly what we need to be doing. Is it the most important story we could do? No, but it mattered to people. It mattered to people in a visceral, real day-to-day way. And that's the kind of mindset where you're, you don't want to be looking at total traffic. You want to be looking at engagement in the broadest sense and conversions in the broadest sense. And then there's another thing, and that's a, this is a tough thing back to the creatives thing in this business. There's another thing that sometimes a story just doesn't do a lot of traffic, doesn't do a lot of subscriptions has modest engagement time, but I know I've been doing this long enough. It's a really good story. It was an important story to tell. It needed to be told. I'm glad we told it. And it just didn't hit. And that happens, you know? And so you can't, you can't just view it based on those analytics because sometimes a story just doesn't hit, you know, just for whatever reason. You don't want that, you know, and we try to like a story that we think should be hitting and doing better and converting isn't. We try to work it and do some things, but sometimes you just can't. And, but I still will give great credit to the reporter and photographer who worked on that and the editor, you know, that they, they tried and it was important to tell regardless. What's that tension feel like as a writer or reporter when, you know, data drives a lot? It, you, you have to be careful with it. You, you have to get people to understand. And I can't say we've done that as well as, as I would like. I mean, and COVID really hurt because you couldn't bring people in and we do these Zoom calls with analytics and it was just really difficult to kind of engage people on that stuff because you don't, you don't want the message to be a story isn't worthwhile if it doesn't convert and engage um, because some stories just have to be done. But you, and you don't want people chasing clicks and you want people covering their beats thoroughly. You don't want them feeling down because their story only converted two subscribers and Jeff's story converted 20 subscribers, you just, you know, different beats, different people. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a delicate conversation, but it's a careful conversation and it really has to be. Yeah. Last question I got, what are you shooting for now? What's most important to you with this paper now? H- hiring. We struggled like everybody last year to hire. Uh, we had a couple of retirements, which, you know, just happens. Um, but key people like Tom and, and Wayne Risher and, um, um, it just really, you know, hurt. I, I wish them well. It's not that. So we we were, you know, we finally made a decision to go young in terms of hiring new reporters. We, we it's not that we hadn't before then, but we we decided we were budgeted for thirty six people last year. We never got to maybe thirty two at the most. Um, we're budgeted for forty people in the newsroom this year, and we said let's let's do it by going young. And we've hired these fantastic young people. Um, some some with a couple of years experience, some with maybe a year of freelance experience, one right out of college, you know, and that's awesome. And I, I love it. They're enthusiastic. They maybe need some more work. They, a couple of them are from out of town, so they don't necessarily know Memphis as well. We've got great editors to work with them. You have to be, I mean, as as my editor had to be with me when I was their age, you have to be more patient, you know, but it is kind of, it's super fun, actually. I mean, it's just to bring in this next young generation. There's, they are, they want to do this because it's, it's, it's important because they like it. And they're just, they're awesome. We're also bringing, we brought in some veterans and that's exciting. 
And we're about to fill out our investigative and enterprise team. We hope in the next couple of weeks, that'll be really cool to have that. That has always been something we want to do from day one. And we just never quite gotten there, but we hired a veteran investigative editor um, from uh, DC who uprooted his life and came here and he's fabulous. And we're about to get, we think two people working for him. So that's, that's, and then on the, the business side as well. I mean, we just hired, we hired some marketing people and a new ad person and it's all people, right? I mean, that's, that's what's fun and that's what's exciting and particularly getting out of COVID and being able to hopefully look forward on all these things from editorially, business-wise tech. That's, that's where we want to be. That's my focus for this year. Are you surprised to be here today from driving a forklift in Tacoma, Washington? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I knew I could get and go to college. I mean, I did know that. It wasn't that, you know, those stories are amazing to me. People who just, not, I don't mean even to go to college, but even to go to college was amazing. But no, I, I wanted to, I didn't know. I had no, no notion of being a publisher or being a CEO or anything like that. No. So. Well, I told you, I got to have you out by 4.30, but I think uh, you got to thank your parents to, for, <laughs> yeah. for the grind, for the work ethic. Uh, it'll yeah. be fun to continue to see and grateful for you and love being with you here. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story in life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.